coming up. Do you know what the doll Barbie said her very first words out of her mouth? Science and gender. She said, math class is tough. Why is science still dominated by men? If men and women do have different brains, if we have different cognitive skills, we better have everybody being a scientist so that we can perceive all of reality. What is the feminist critique of science? It's not rocket science. Is science inherently sexist? Isn't the scientific method gender neutral? Asking a different question is really important. Our guest is Londa Schiembinger, author of Nature's Body, Gender in the Making of Modern Science. How can you use the methods of gender analysis to see new things? Is science the last bastion of a dying patriarchy? What I'm interested in is the gender bias in the knowledge. Science and gender, coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Mars Theater, the Bay Area's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originates across the Bay at Stanford University. That's where Ken and I both practice and teach philosophy. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Today, it's science and gender. Well, you know, Ken, science used to be pretty much an all-boys club. Back in the 1980s, for example, when students were asked to draw what a scientist looks like, 48% drew a scientist with facial hair, definitely a man. 25% gave their scientists a pocket protector, kind of a male thing. Only 8% drew a woman. Yeah, you know, John, I recently read an article by one of the first two women to earn an undergraduate degree in physics from Yale, you know when she graduated? 1978. Come on, Yale is over 300 years old. Well, let's be fair to Yale. They didn't go co-ed until 1969, or does, does that but make it still. worse? still. Things are a little better than they used to be. Nowadays, for example, when you ask students to draw pictures of scientists, no pocket protectors. That's, that's, that's progress. That's progress. Uh, a whopping 33% draw women scientists. Well, that's good. And there's also the fact that a lot of young women study science in high school these days. Many major in science in college. And a lot go on to get PhDs. In fact, in 2009, more women than men earned PhDs in the biological and agricultural sciences, the social and behavioral sciences, and, and also the health sciences. So that's progress. Well, I don't want to rain on your parade, but there are areas where men still outpace women. That same year, women had less than a third of the PhDs in math, computer science, physical and earth science, and engineering. Yeah, you know, and strangely enough, John, though the pipeline of women in science has been steadily improving, it's still the case that more men than women have successful careers in science. After 30 years, of determined efforts to increase the number of women in our own faculty in science and engineering at Stanford, only 22% of all senior faculty are women. Uh, it's something, yeah, I really don't know how to explain that. Well, you don't like Larry Summers' explanation, the one he gave when he was president of Harvard? Oh, God, no, I surely don't want to go there. He got put up, beat up pretty bad for that one, John. Well, deservedly so. He implied that fewer women than men are likely to have the innate 
aptitude to do well in science because women are, so it sounded like he was saying, genetically inferior. That would just be old-fashioned sexism dressed up with crude biological determinism. Uh, in fairness to Summers, uh, he wasn't being quite that crude. I mean, he was claiming that when it comes to intelligence, men cluster much more around the extremes than women do. In other words, men tend to be either really dumb or really smart without much in between, and women tend to cluster more heavily around the mean than men do. That means that there may be a lot fewer really dumb women but on the other side of that is there are a lot fewer really brilliant women, too. And then he added that people who succeeded science are by and large drawn from the really brilliant end of the spectrum. So it wasn't that crude. Uh, it wasn't that crude. It, it, it didn't get him a lot of fans. Men can be amazingly obtuse sometimes, and Summers himself witnesses that. Yeah, you got a better explanation, though? How about outright sexism? How about cultural stereotypes? How about differences in the way girls and boys are socialized? Uh, but these days, more, we already said, more and more women are getting PhDs in a whole variety of scientific fields. Doesn't that alone suggest that whatever role sexism used to play, it plays much less of a role than it did back in the old bad old day? Well, don't fool yourself. Sexism is not dead. It may have gone more underground, that's all. Well, I, I'm not sure what you mean, underground sexism. What, what are you talking well, about? Well, we do a little experiment. Give two independent hiring committees exactly the same resumes, two aspiring young scientists, identical in every respect, except one is named Roberta, uh, a recognizably female name, and the other one is Robert, a recognizably well, male name. That shouldn't make matter at all, should it? I mean, after all, what's in a name, as Shakespeare asks? Apparently, quite a bit. On trial after trial, the candidate with the female name is judged to be less qualified than the candidate with the male name. Incidentally, this might interest you, the same goes for candidates with recognizably minority names. Yeah, that's pretty disturbing stuff, John. And it's not just men who make these calls. It's women, too. Women on the committees, same result. People who wouldn't consciously entertain a sexist thought if you paid them can be completely unaware of their implicit biases. That makes those biases the most insidious kind. They're hard to get rid of, and they work against women in many ways. Well, so I, I got a new slogan for you. Implicit biases are the enemies of gender justice. How about that? It's not just a matter of justice. Science itself is worse off when the voices and perspectives of women mi and minorities are systematically excluded. Ah, come on, are you claiming that women and minorities actually make better scientists than white males? Sounds like you've got the gender bias here. No, that's not the point. Women and minorities may or may not be better individual scientists. But they make science better because the bias in the way it's conducted. Think of all the clinical research. This has been documented. They oversample white males. They radically undersample minorities and women. And it leads to bad results. I know what you're talking about. This, this is puzzling. It's challenging stuff. You know, I'm not really sure where even to begin to address these problems. Well, let's do some consciousness raising. We can do that. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch to ask women scientists about the explicit and implicit biases they face every day. She files this report. Sometimes gender bias can be subtle, like it was for Jennifer Raymond, a neuroscientist at Stanford. One time I was speaking in a, a retreat, 
and one of my senior male colleagues was introducing the speaker before me who happened to be a trainee and went on and on about his scientific talent and the brilliance of his project and then the same moderator introduced me by saying I was a mother. <laughs> or it could be overt as it was for women of a slightly older generation. MIT biologist Nancy Hopkins recalls the time she met Francis Crick, the man who co-discovered the structure of DNA. She was a young student at Harvard. And the door flew open, and um, standing in the doorway, there was Francis Crick. I recognized him at once. I looked up, and he zoomed across the room, put his hands on my breast, and said, what are you working on? <laughs> and I thought, whoa, this is an awkward situation right here. Well, what do I do here? I've got to uh, get out of this without embarrassing this man. Hopkins says she was incredibly embarrassed, but it never occurred to her that groping was cause for complaint, so she didn't tell anyone. Later, when Hopkins started her own lab in the 1970s, she started noticing that when women scientists made important discoveries, they weren't as referenced or as valued as their male colleagues. So you just kept trying harder and harder and harder. And I think it took me 20 years of watching other women and realizing it didn't matter how hard you tried, you couldn't be taken as an equal no matter what you discovered. And this revelation was a huge blow to Hopkins. She actually thought about leaving science altogether. It was like trying to fill a bucket that had a hole in the bottom of it. You know, you kept doing more and more work, but the work kept running out the bottom of the bucket. Hopkins says things have changed a lot since then, but there's still the nagging problem of the unconscious bias. Skidmore College psychologist Corinne Moss-Rakusen has actually documented this. We were really curious to see whether male and female faculty members, if they were presented with an equivalently qualified male and female science student, would they view those students equally? Would they mentor them equally? Would they evaluate them equally? So in 2012, Moss-Rakusen and her team recruited 130 faculty members at colleges and universities all over the country. They sent them applications from a student who was applying to be a lab manager. Everything in the application was exactly the same, except that half the participants got applications from a female and half got applications from a male. The results were pretty surprising. When the student is described as female, faculty members rate her as less competent than the identical male student. They're less likely to mentor her, less likely to hire her for a lab manager position. And if they do hire her, they pay her about $4,000 per year less on average than, again, the identical male student. And this bias wasn't just coming from male faculty. The female faculty members had the same unconscious bias. Stanford professor Jennifer Raymond says the first step toward dealing with the problem is admitting it. We had made a lot of progress in the 80s and 90s, and then in the last 15 years or so, progress has leveled off. So um, when I did the calculation in my field in neuroscience, to get to 50-50 gender equity at the faculty level, if we kept going at the rate we're going now, it, it, we wouldn't reach 50-50 until sometime in the 22nd century. Raymond says this isn't just about fairness. We're facing huge problems that science can fix. Climate change, food shortages, disease. And we need to draw from the full scientific talent pool, male and female. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.